recording of Mr. Peter Bouguet, interviewed by Rodney Giesler in Dalverton on the 9th of September 1993. To begin this interview, Mr. Bouguet, could you tell me um, when you were born, where you were born, and a bit about your family background? I was born in Norway, a very small town on the west coast, Augustinsund, which is unfortunate because it's the longest name of any town in Norway, and I've never been, really been there. But I still have to put it down on the passport every time I get a new one. And my father was an architect, and he got a job straight from university in Kristiansund. And I was born there in 1918. But we moved from there when I was two years old, down to town near Oslo. And uh, most of my youth was spent there near and in Oslo. My father's still an architect, and um, I went to school. All I ever thought of was flying, and there's not much to do with that in Norway. So I became interested in model aeroplanes, and uh, spent all my time make, making flying model aeroplanes, which was rather fun, because there weren't many people in Norway doing that either. So I won most of the competitions I entered, well, it's not difficult at all. How, how did you come to uh, actually fly, learn to fly? Well, I wanted to fly. There was nothing else I wanted. Um, my family didn't really want it. But uh, the only way I could do it in Norway was to join the Air Force. As uh, most, It really was the only way of uh, getting into flying. And uh, I applied, and uh, I knew the right people, I thought. My father knew some people. There should be no difficulty getting into the Air Force. Now I applied and I was rejected for one reason only. I was too interested too tall. And that was the biggest blow I've ever had in my life, I think, because uh, my school exams were pretty good. My sporting activities were quite good as well. The big, strong chap, but too big. Uh, that was the only thing I couldn't do anything about. Next year I could have run 100 meter faster if I really tried. I could have set my exams again, possibly improved upon them, but I thought being two inches too tall, that was really very serious blow. So I took up the alternative, which was mining engineering, because my family wanted that for me. I stuck that for a year as an apprentice, which was very useful. Then a year at university, then it became quite clear to me that I didn't want mining engineering, and I tried again for the Air Force, and I collapsed in all my joints, made myself <coughs> two inches shorter, and I got in. So uh, there I was. in all your joints, which yes. you bend doubles. Yeah, so knees and back and everything collapsed a bit, so I was the right height and everything else was fine. So you joined the Royal Norwegian Air Force before the war then, did you? Just before the war. I was very annoyed when the war started. Because uh, that was in the beginning of September, I think. And uh, they had all our leave cancelled. I started in, uh, I think, June in Air Force. Uh, I enrolled for a year because any university student in Norway has to take one year military service to become a reserve officer. And you can choose either Air Force, Navy or Army. So I chose Air Force, of course. And you learned to fly where? Um, place just outside Oslo, Kjeller, was still an Air Force base. I um, had the flying school, 
and uh, that was my first connection with connection with the Havlin, because they had uh, nothing but tiger moths, and we all learned on tiger moths. And uh, well, it's a great little airplane. I still think so. And that, that was your primary training then. What was yes. your advanced training on? Well, uh, we had uh, um, some rather ancient uh, Fokker scouts biplanes. They're fairly big, powerful machines, and uh, they're slightly more advanced, much bigger, and fully equipped in machine guns and so on. And uh, we also had some uh, strange English aeroplanes, Armstrong with scimitars, which were fighters. Nobody's ever heard of them, but they were fantastic little aeroplanes, very powerful, at least I thought so then, biplanes, extremely maneuverable, and uh, we only had about three or four of those. And we were going to go on from there on to Gloucester Gladiators, which we just ordered quite a few. And also, we had ordered some um, Curtis, um, very modern at that time, low-wing fighters. I forget the numbers. Um, they're just starting to arrive when the war started in Norway, which was the 9th of April the following year. And uh, they were just being assembled. They're waiting to fly because um, we couldn't fly from fly those from Scheller because of the snow. And then, of course, the Germans came and bombed a lot. So that, that was it. We were really furious, just standing there. Nothing anybody could do. But um, what did you do? I mean, house, the Germans arrived on your doorstep, did they? Yes, they did. Um, and uh, oh, we had... Uh, couple of weeks of token resistance. There's nothing we could do as a flying unit. We tried to keep together because we weren't a fighting unit yet. And we just retreat, retreated up the valleys in the east of Norway. And uh, we thought it could be useful in communications and so on. But uh, never got as far as that. And the Germans um, kept pressing on at us. And then our commander um, negotiated a passage for it through Sweden. We were allowed to fly through Sweden to join the rest of the Norwegian forces which were still fighting in the north of Norway. <coughs> we couldn't couldn't go direct through because the Germans were in control of Trondheim, which is right in the middle. And then we all flew off to Sweden and uh, exactly half of us made it. It started off in a terrible snowstorm. The most, most perilous, perilous journey I've ever made in my life in an aeroplane. And uh, I very nearly came to so many sticky hands on that trip. I only had about 100 flying hours or so. Well, I thought that was quite enough. What um, were you flying at that? Tiger moth. On a tiger moth? Yeah, yes. And um, you landed where? We hardly landed. Um, <laughs> I got, in the end, I, I tried to follow a valley, which got steeper and steeper and smaller and smaller, and a small black V in front of me bottom of the valley and the bottom of the cloud got smaller and smaller. In the end, I had to get into a cloud. And we weren't terribly good at instrument flying. But uh, I just managed to... I closed my eyes, practically, and got on minimum speed so as to not to hit the mountainside too hard and <laughs> climbed up. And when it, uh, it was terribly bumpy, when it got reasonably smooth, I got up to about 5,000 feet. I knew I was well above any mountain range there and set course east and stared east for half an hour. Now, I knew I was in Sweden by then and I started letting down, down and down and down through the cloud. And uh, 
nothing to be seen at all, just huge great forest, great big pine trees. And uh, I didn't have any maps, we'd been given a look of one map before we started, but that was all. And so I had a, an engineer with me, tapped him on the shoulder, said, Hold. And uh, he prepared to clamber over the side and jump. I only had about 10 minutes fuel left by then. And uh, then I suddenly remembered our struggle to get into the airplane. We had to struggle through about three feet of snow. And I thought, if we jump out here, we'll just never get anywhere at all. I better be with the airplane, maybe crash, at least somebody will find us. And then I, at last I spotted a road and a farmhouse and a tiny field and uh, made three attempts to get into the field and uh, finally clomped down in again in about three feet of snow so it stopped almost instantly. Beautiful landing. But your engineer had bailed out? No, no, he hadn't. No, I managed to stop him. And so we struggled to the farmhouse, which made me realize just as well we hadn't because only a couple of hundred yards took us half an hour to get there. So that was it. That was in turn in Sweden then. We weren't allowed to fly through because the Germans had heard of our little scheme and they put their foot down and the Swedes, when the Germans said jump, they jumped. So that was it. So How we long were you in turn for? About three months. And then the war stopped in Norway and um, we could do whatever we wanted. We could stay in Sweden. We could go on eastwards through Russia and join up in Canada. Or we can return to Norway. So I thought I can always get away from Norway, but I haven't heard from my family for three months, so I wanted to get back and uh, see what had happened. So I chose that and got back, and my family was there, all right. Then started straight away trying to escape to England, or arrange an escape, and I thought the best way to do this would be to go back to university and start my studies again, because there'll be lots of people from there I would do this, and uh, so they were, but it took a long time. It took, uh, oh, four or five months to arrange to get a boat from the north of Norway, and then with 13 of us, 12 or 13, and we set off from way up north of Norway. Whereabouts? Lofoten, and um, that was before the famous raid on Lofoten, only a couple of months before, so we, if we'd stayed there, we could have had a free ride. But uh, we all threw in what we have had in the way of money, bought this boat, and we set off for Shetland, we thought. But that was on the beginning of February, and very, very nasty in the North Sea at that time. And had full gales, and uh, we never thought we'd make it. We did, uh, not Shetland, but uh, north of Scotland. We missed Shetland altogether because of gales, and uh, there's no way of navigating because there's no sun, we're way above the Arctic Circle, most of the time. But uh, made it to Scotland, and uh, that was that. Presumably so. the weather helped your escape anyway, because the Germans... Could yeah, probably, yes. Uh, we never saw anything at all, not a sign of life for nine days. Absolutely nothing. When you arrived in Scotland, were you welcomed, or how did you... Oh, yes, indeed, very welcome. Um, we arrived in a little bay, just off Cape Wrath, and... Uh, um, we were absolutely worn out and sheltered in this bay. We were running out of water. We had plenty of food because nobody had eaten much. We'd all been sick all the time. And uh, 
So we got ashore and uh, started collecting buckets of water. There's a farm trap standing top of the cliff there. And we get, got up to the farmhouse and said, uh, can we get anywhere from here? No, he said, they've been cut off for two weeks of snowstorms. Nowhere at all. And he said, uh, we said, we've just come from Norway. And I said, ah, yes, you're not the first ones. Um, we had somebody like you 900 years ago in this bay. So that was it. We stayed there three days, recovered, and then set off for Thursday, which was uh, the, the only port around there. And uh, we were welcomed there by a marvelous chap, Major, I think it was, Selberson. They've probably seen his name on huge gate lorries going up and down M3, even down here. Uh, he's an importer of all sorts of things, half Norwegian, and he made us uh, very welcome, arranged everything for us, and we were sent down to London for interrogations and so on, which uh, in our case didn't last too long. There were people who were stuck in this interrogation unit for months, but I was only there for a day and just let off in London. Um, was there much you were able to tell them? Oh, quite a lot, yes. Mm. Oh, yes. We had collected, oh, bales of newspaper, and I had masses of photographs and so on. So it was all very welcome, but it seemed, the whole thing seemed very casual. And not, nothing was very urgent, and I was very impatient to get going. But I was stuck in London for three months, doing nothing at all. This was still 1940, was it? Uh, 41. 41. So after the, well, after Bretsvigor, um, we had a night, night bombing started in London, which was um, not very nice, but uh, was quite exciting. But uh, I was very frustrated not being able to uh, get flying and get going. I was given a test, by the way. I don't know if you heard of Wing Commander Pike, who was the station commander at Hatfield. One time, also the commander of number three unit elementary flying, I think. So he took me to Pangbourne, gave me a uh, flying check, just to check my story. In Pangbourne? Yes, from Pangbourne. That was the, this, uh, or perhaps I was late, no, from Hatfield, I think. It was still a grasser airfield by then. Mm. And uh, in a tiger mouth, just to see that I was uh, speaking the truth. And he was happy with that, and that was it. So you did this flight from Hatfield, then? Yes, my my first uh, introduction to Hatfield. And then I was sent through the whole rigmarole of uh, RAF training, starting from EFTS, which was a terrible bore. (laughs) (laughs) On time once again. (laughs) And SFTS and OTUs and all that. Struggling all the way. The three of us, together, arrived in this boat. And uh, on every posting, uh, they tried to split us up. And everybody said, oh, if you're posted in the RF, there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. You just do as you're told. So I wasn't used to be doing as I was told. <laughs> so I said, I'm not accepting this. There are three of us, and we won't stay together. And we did manage to stay together. Unfortunately, one was shot down near Oxford at Kidlington, flying, um, flying Oxford. Um, our last flight from that unit was just flying a circular course, um, a triangular course rather, around searchlights, uh, just to get some night flying experience in, on our own in Oxford. And 
we had an arrangement in case of an air raid, these searchlights would dip down. And uh, while I was up, these searchlights did dip down. And uh, we were then to land immediately, as soon as we could. And so I got back to base, and uh, doing terrible evasive action, looking over my shoulder all the time. And uh, on the downwind leg, we were supposed to just flash our landing lights, just to show that um, we were there, prepared that we were coming in. And I thought, well, German could be anywhere. The three of us doing exactly the same thing, the danger of collision, is greater than the danger of being shot down. So I flashed my landing light. The bloody thing stuck on. <laughs> so I was flying like a, a torch through the sky. Uh, it had three positions, this landing light, up, down, and in the middle, which was off. And the middle just didn't work. So there, I knew that if there was a German around, I should be the target. And to their most uh, violent evasive action and had to get in on the final top speed for the Oxford and that's uh, about 200 feet up with not a rattle in the tail and something flashed by me and then well that was it uh, ahead of me on the runway there were four great crumps and four bombs blew up so I landed in amongst all that lot and managed to taxi in at very high speed. Sergeant came roaring out, said, what the hell do you think you're doing? So you switch the bloody thing off, I can't. And he couldn't, I ripped out the cables. <laughs> so uh, I wasn't really held to blame for that. I was very, very lucky indeed, because uh, uh, there had been some shots through the elevator of the Oxford, and uh, you could sight it from underneath, very low this, intruder, which was a JU-88, and um, I shot from underneath, through the leading edge of the elevator, and hit a reinforcement plate on the side of the fuselage. If that hadn't been there, half an inch either way would have gone straight through my back. So that was my first lucky escape <laughs> in a war. I mean, my, my, one of our, one of the three of us had been shot down by this chap, so that determined me to go into night fighters, try and get my own back, because there was very little doing daylight, and I thought, well, there's obviously not going to be much more day fighting, not for a long time anyway, but night could be interesting, so that's what I did. So that, that meant mosquitoes, did it? Uh, bow fighters, for a start. Mm -hmm. Mosquitoes weren't really in operation then, or very few of them anyway. <coughs> but uh, bow fighters, they're marvellous. Aeroplane. Most aeroplanes get somehow the reputation of being killers. Well, any aeroplane can be a killer. You know, anything from a microlight to a um, superfighter, if you're careless with it. If you treat them with respect, you become, become very friendly with them and uh, they repay your good treatment and treat you well. Bow fighter was very, very strong. If you lost an engine on takeoff on a bow fighter, it wasn't too happy, was it? Not too happy, but uh, it wasn't fatal. However, my my remaining friend nearly caught it that way, because he lost an engine on takeoff, and um, he crashed um, just a mile further on, and he was knocked out, because he hit his head on the gun sight. But he had a very strong jab as a, an observer, and managed to haul him out, and then the thing blew up, and he was all right. So that could be nasty like that. 
Uh, both fighters have been fitted with their AI by that Oh, yes, yes, yes. Did you have any success? Very little. There wasn't uh, hardly any, any Germans at all. My boss then was Cunningham, and uh, he was, uh, he'd had quite a few successes. He was desperately keen on flying, uh, and uh, of course he, he was the experienced night fighter pilot, and he was uh, keen to collect as much as he could. And so nobody else got a chance, really. If there was anybody around, he got them, which is the sort of thing he's kept up ever since. Yeah. Where were you based on these? First of all, Middle Wallop, the grass airfield. A nice place, old uh, pre-war mess, very comfortable, and uh, right in the middle of where you expected things to happen. Nothing much did. Huh? I had, I saw one Heinkel in all this time, as a, on a, a day somewhat like this, um, raining, low cloud. When we were on the reserve standby in daytime, because the day fighters couldn't operate. This was during the period of the, the beam bombing by the Germans. They came in very high on the beam of some sort, dropped bombs over Bath, Exeter even, all sorts of places. And uh, we were scrambled after two of these, John Cunningham and myself, and uh, we were both given contacts. And uh, I closed in on my contact and uh, got up popped out of cloud about um, 20,000 feet and uh, they was just above the cloud and I was closing in on them and uh, feeling rather vulnerable because he could obviously see me as a Heinkel. Uh, I wasn't worried about him firing at me because um, I had more guns than he had but I was worried about him getting away and he did get away. He did a total wing over was a big thing for Hankel to do. And uh, I followed him on the AI down through cloud, vertically down, <laughs> which uh, was a bit nerve-wracking, but uh, there he was. And in the end, at about 6,000 feet, I thought, no, I'm going too fast. And going down here, the hell of a rate of knots. And I better pull out. So I did, and um, only just in time. I pulled out about 500 feet, so over the sea, just uh, not far from the Isle of Wight, and uh, there was no more contact. He was, he disappeared from radar contact altogether. So I got back and landed, and there was out my report, and Don Cunningham did the same, landed about the same time. He had exactly the same experience as I did. Um, saw the thing, and it died into cloud, and he followed it. Now there was the fired our guns. But then, while we were being briefed, debriefed, message came in that there was one Heinkel being fought, found, crashed. And um, so we followed the trace on the radar, and it was the one he'd uh, been following. So he was credited one more Heinkel without firing his guns at all. Mine, being identical, was over the sea. So it was probably in the sea, but there's no found. So he got. It's 24th, while I'm still looking for my first. <laughs> so in both of those cases, you probably flew them into the ground then, because if yes. you only pulled out of 500. Yes, I know. Um, mm. And you're, you were flying a stronger aeroplane, I would imagine. Yes. Mm. He probably collapsed. Yes, I'm sure it did. Yeah. Anyhow, you, you went on flying both fighters for a bit? For a bit, yes. Well, there was very little doing in, uh, in England. 
and uh, I got fed up with hanging about and tried to transfer to um, Africa where there was still a bit of war going on. So I managed to do that <coughs> and uh, joined a squadron there, outskirts of Tunis, which is uh, um, quite exciting. Uh, there's a bit of activity going on there. Not an awful lot, but uh, I did manage to... Um, one of the first things I did was to get behind an Italian and shoot him down. And uh, then, short time after that, I had a, an urgent recall to England. And I thought, oh, good, we're going to start the front in Norway or something. So we wanted for that. I was sent back to Norway, to, uh, to England, at a very leisurely pace on the boat, two or three weeks to get from Africa to England, nearly lethal because whiskey was threatened to go. <laughs> There's nothing else to do, sit and play poker and drink whiskey. But got home. Report. Well, about 1943. Yes. No, um, before that, 42, I think. Before that, and uh, reported to the Norwegian headquarters, and I was given, torn off a most enormous trip for having shot down an Italian. C and C, an admiral, Ries Larsen, he said, you shouldn't have done that because we were not at war with Italy. Now you've created all sorts of complications for us. <laughs> so... The Italians have surrendered then? No, no. They haven't. Oh, no. Oh, you mean Norway wasn't? Norway was not at war with Italy because Norway was only at war with Germany. Germany, of course, had invent, invaded Norway. Well, we had no uh, cause for complaints for the Italians. So you I'd were flying under RAF colours? Yes, I was, I was in the RAF virtually. I had a small Norwegian flag on my uniform. And uh, I was paid by the Norwegians, fortunately. Um, that meant more money, didn't it? Much more money, yes. Really? Oh, yes, twice, twice what the RAF was getting. Because Norwegians were very rich in those days. We had a huge fleet out at sea, earning lots of money, and so they could afford to pay us quite well. But, uh, as I said, you can't have that sort of thing going on. So, I was reposted in England, and uh, joined a mosquito squadron. John Cunningham had been on rest at this time. I should have been on rest too, but I, I managed to get his posting to Africa instead. So... Uh, I joined up with the Cunningham squadron again, and they were flying mosquitoes by now, stationed at West Morling, and uh, there's a bit more activity there. This was the time when the flying bombs had started. They were just about starting then. So they, you were flying day fighters, effectively? No. Uh, at times, I'd, I didn't do that then. There, there weren't all that many of them. No, I just, perhaps I got it slightly wrong. They hadn't really started yet then. We were still pure night fighting. There was the occasional raid during the night, but uh, there were more night fighters than Germans, really. So we were very lucky even to get behind one. Uh, there was very little activity. I got behind one Messerschmitt 410 on one occasion, starting. He was going towards London, starting very high, about 30,000 feet. And... Uh, I wasn't sure what it was. I was, I was told it was a bogey. Could have been enemy aircraft. So I closed in on him. He was taking a rather sharp evasive action. So I thought it must be a German. Got to where I could see him. He was heading for London, diving all the time. I was diving pretty fast. Then I, I saw him and shot at him. Uh, he, and as I shot, 
he shot back at me. So I thought, thank God for that. It's not a not a mosquito because they looked very much the same from behind. And so I hit him, and he went down like that again, probably into the sea, of um, in the, in the Thames Estuary. In fact, he dropped his bombs somewhere when I was, he was in shot at. So I had two radar blips on the screen. One went absolutely straight down. The other one slightly less straight down, but both pretty well down. So. Again, that was a, a probable, not not a confirmed one. And that uh, that's the only time, two times, I've been in the air at the same time as a German, and uh, twice I'd uh, actually done something about them. So it wasn't an awful lot doing. Now, were you with mosquitoes for the rest of the war? Uh, no. I was eventually caught out. Our boss, the admiral, sent for me and said... Uh, got a job for you. We need people for the transport unit in Scotland. So I don't want to be a transport pilot. Uh, I got a very good job as it is as a night fighter. And I said, no, you've been at it for too long. We haven't had a rest period yet. And this is supposed to be a rest period. It's a civilian unit flying load stars, uh, operating under British Airways, BOAC as it was. you just got to take it. So I'd had to join it. They were flying between Scotland and uh, Stockholm. So the stars. Yes. So I thought, well, yeah, it could be quite fun and uh, to join that. And I thought also, well, there is not much future in this night flying business, night fighting business, until there is an, an invasion or something. And that doesn't seem to be coming, so might as well get some useful experience because at the time I was going to go on flying out of war, I thought Lone Star could be a useful aeroplane to have in your logbook as an airline pilot. So it was. I did about 50 trips between Scotland and Stockholm in just over a year, and I was doing that when uh, the war stopped. So it was great fun. Most dangerous flying I've ever done, because more people are shot down on that run than in any squadron I've ever been with. Were you Five. unarmed? Yes, totally unarmed. And, and what was your maximum speed? Oh, not a lot. Just under 300 miles an hour, I think. Did you run but into any trouble at all? Oh, yes, quite a bit. We knew the trouble spots. We had our own routes across Norway and our own way of flying. We were left entirely to our own devices, how to get there, when to get there. We had uh, usually I got in to, between Stavanger and Bergen, one of those deep fjords into Norway, dive down to sea level at the entrance of the fjord and followed it in and up across the mountains. And uh, night. Yes. It was great flying, marvellous flying. And uh, the people there, they were old uh, airline pilots. Not the faintest idea about the night fighting, night or fighting flying at all. I could tell them a lot of, about it, how to evade the night fighters because most of this time we've been doing practice runs up and down a channel. There were always two of us in our mosquitoes or bow fighters practicing interception of each other and we became pretty good at avoiding each other because if you have radar then there's hardly any way that anybody can catch you uh, at night. You've got to be a bloody good pilot to do that and so I, by this time we had a rearward looking radar 
already a warning, should we say, on the lodestar. So we knew when things were after us, and I knew that nobody could catch me, because the lodestar was quite a nicely lurking, very reasonably fast and uh, quite manoeuvrable. I knew I could practically outmaneuver the Junkers 88, which is what they would have. So that didn't worry me what a little bit. Quite true, we had three lights on this radar, warnings, faint red light, which was for general surveillance. Well, that was on always, all the time, so we knew that we were. This was ground radar? Yes, we knew we were being observed. Um, stronger red light, which was uh, tied into the gun radar. We'd got this from Bomber Command, incidentally. They'd used it over Germany. And this had a delay built into it. They used it at about between 15 and 20,000 feet. And, uh, of course, Germany was absolutely stiff with guns, radar controlled, always searching. So they had a delay built in, so they knew when the light came on, the shell was on its way up, which gave you plenty of time to take evasive action, of course, because it takes quite a few seconds to get up there. But the trouble was that this was for, say, 15,000 feet, and it hadn't been readjusted for us. <laughs> and it hit me once at 4,000 feet. I just um, over the, the east of Norway, just north of Oslo, I'd come down through cloud. We had no means of navigation except dead reckoning, no radio navigation at all. And I'd come down gingerly through cloud, knew roughly where I was, but not exactly. I thought I was maybe just north of Oslo, and uh, then all of a sudden I saw four bright sparks below me, and uh, I knew where I was, and that was a very good pinpoint. That could only be Gardebon, because that was the only fortified place in that part of the world. Four, four bright flashes could only mean a battery of four 88mm uh, guns. Uh, and that's a big airfield north of Oslo, yes. which is now a major airport. That's right, yeah. I knew that place very well. So the moment I saw that, I was in, in a vertical turn, of course, which just as well. But as I was turning, my light came on, and as the light came on, four shells burst where I should have been. And I collected one little piece of uh, shrapnel in an engine. That's the only thing I collected on the wall. And that's well, the closest you got to being shot down on yes. the what were you carrying, and who were you carrying? Passengers. Uh, they uh, they ball bearings, they said. Mostly passengers. Um, people escaped from Norway. Diplomats and spies, what have you, between Sweden and Norway. Uh, not not a lot of people going to Norway, mostly coming out from Sweden. And being um, an airline-operated air aircraft with no armament, it didn't infringe Swedish neutrality? No. No. <coughs> we had to operate under... Um, BOC rules because uh, international law there was such that you couldn't have your own airline operating between two foreign countries so we had to be British in fact I got a British passport then so while I was in Stockholm I was British in uh, Scotland I was Norwegian so that took me through the end of the war but you still got paid by Norway yes <laughs> <laughs> fortunately because they had mosquitoes on this trip as well. Didn't yes, they? they did. Yes. So they were less comfortable. You had to lie in the Bombay or something. That's right. Yes, there are many funny stories about that. But <laughs> they're great chaps, the mosquito pilots. Of course, they could. Uh, we sometimes could make a return trip 
at night. There are lots of opinions about that. For instance, these old pilots, they said, uh, you must never fly in bright moonlight, because then they can see you. So I, I said, they can see me whether there's moonlight or not. They got the radar. That's how we saw people. In moonlight, I can see them as well. And as a night fighter, I always felt very vulnerable in moonlight, because I was a, as good a target as my targets were. They couldn't understand that. I said, in moonlight, I can go down on the deck, even over over the mountains, in which case there's nobody who can catch me. If I fly at 200 feet, as in fact doing what they're doing nowadays, not, but not automatically, uh, contour flying, there's nobody who can catch me at all. And I knew that was impossible. They just couldn't see this. They didn't fly, and that's all. Yeah, I said, if, if you can't let me fly, you put a foot down, I shall not fly again with you at all. I'll go somewhere else. <laughs> so I, I had my own way on that. So again, you see, I, I wasn't... I, I never believed in doing what I was told. Yes. <laughs> <coughs> so that was really the, the end of your wartime service yes. as a military yeah. pilot. Yes. I stayed in the Air Force for about... Oh, till the end of the year. I couldn't get out until then. At the end of the year, they couldn't keep me, and uh, I got a job in Swedish Airlines. I got fed up with waiting for the Norwegians, couldn't make up their mind how to start the airline, and got an offer in from Sweden. I mean, what what about your um, um, family and so on? You haven't been able to keep contact with them? No, no. During the war? No, they were all right. But, uh, they hadn't suffered enormously. They'd gone oh, without... Not the essentials of life, but uh, they, they had a hard time, very difficult time. Some of my family had, uh, had gone over to Sweden. An uncle of mine, who was um, the director of a, an armament factory in Norway, he had been forced by the Germans to cooperate, and then he escaped to Sweden, and his family joined him there. So the last few times I'd been to Sweden, I'd seen them. So they had some news from Norway. And uh, when, when did you meet your wife? Did you meet her during the war? Or yes, the war? yes, she was, uh, she was with um, BIC as a ground hostess. In fact, um, she was the sister of uh, our adjutant in my last squadron, a um, great friend with John Cunningham and myself. So we got married just after the war ended. Can we turn now to your experiences after the war? You became an airline pilot, I believe. Yes, um, I got a job with Swedish Airlines, ABA, it was later part of SAS, quite straightforward job, flying DC-3s and DC-4s around European runs, routes. Which it was, was out of Bromma, was it? Yes, that's right. So we lived in Stockholm, which was um, quite nice after wartime Norway and um, England. It's, they had everything there. They thought it had been hard done by, but uh, not, nothing like the rest of Europe, of course. It was quite pleasant. Um, rather well, too full of Swedes, of course. But there were quite a lot of English and American pilots as well. There. Three Norwegians, including myself. And what was um, uh, airline flying in those days compared to, say, European flying now? I mean, what was air traffic control like? And uh, the skies oh, are relatively empty. Absolutely empty. Beautiful, yes. You hardly had to look out at all. And 
there's no radar control or anything like that and there's very little in the way of things like ILS that sort of thing hardly hardly existed at all so instrument landing system yes no you flew visual most of the time yes Um, sometimes you had to get up through cloud and um, then be let down you get from point to point beacons and they were let down procedures which were very basic compared to what they are nowadays it was it was quite pleasant very leisurely and uh, flying at about 200 250 miles an hour DC4 and what heights but, typically oh 8000 feet the standard height 6 or 8000 feet they're unpressurized so I didn't want to go any higher than that 6000 feet was the ideal height over most of Europe and I suppose most of the um Airports were still um, military bases, were they? I mean, oh no, no. Places like um, Bromma had never been military, and uh, London we used uh, Northolt. There was military control. Paris, uh, Le Bourget, that sort of place. They were not particularly military. Um, no. Did you, did you find a Croydon at all? Not on this sort of run. No, I'd, we used Croydon at the end of the war just after what Norwegian Air Force used it between um, London and uh, Oslo um, I, I was still doing that sort of flight then in the Air Force Could you fly um, Stockholm, London non- non-stop? Oh yes You had the range for Yes, oh, yes, no problem Because those presumably would be DC-4s for those specific Yes, uh, DC-3s would do it as well The main, main runs were Stockholm to London Paris, um, Rome, Lisbon. How long were you flying with, with Swedish Airlines? Uh, nearly four years. Uh, then I was, I was getting a bit impatient with that because uh, it was all boring. You just sat there. And there was uh, nothing else to do but get up and plug in the autopilot and looked out every now and then. If you got your stewardesses nicely trained, they would bring you a cup of coffee the moment you would settled in the climb and uh, that was it it went back and forth it was quite interesting at that time flying around Europe because uh, well I hadn't been around Europe at all I hadn't never had a chance of doing that and we had quite a few night stops in places like Paris, Lisbon, Rome, Athens and so on and so I got to know those places very well which was um, very interesting and uh, very enjoyable. I, I like getting places, going places like that. But once you've done it, well, there's a limit to how many times you can do the same run, I think. And I was beginning to think perhaps there's something more in it than this. And uh, I was thinking of starting the, going on the transatlantic run on DC-6s. And I'm just passing my checkout on the DC-6 for this purpose. But I wasn't terribly enthusiastic because I thought the Atlantic run was even more boring than the, the European one. Just New York and nothing else at all. And uh, I wasn't terribly keen on New York. I never have been. And across the Atlantic, only just plug in for seven hours and that's it. And then I got a call from uh, John Cunningham saying we're starting a new thing, a civil airliner jet and we want people to fly it. He was looking for people he knew basically because that's how 
building works, isn't it? Um, in this part of the world, anyway. And uh, not only that, people with airline practice, so I had by then, and people with high speed practice, which they knew I had from the mosquitoes. They couldn't get anything more faster than that at that time. So he thought I was a good choice for that, so I accepted immediately, of course, because that's anybody's dream to be right in the forefront of flying on an exciting new airplane back to England, which I liked. My wife was English. She wouldn't mind that, I thought. I always liked England. I didn't like Stockholm particularly. I wasn't terribly keen on Norway either. It was too small and no, not, no opportunities for anything at all. Wonderful scenery, but I uh, can't live on that. Did you have children by this time? No. no. No, my wife had two children. We never had any apart from that. Um, now, you joined de Havilland's in where? About 49? 49, yes. And um, I think it was uh, February 49, yes. And it was quite a busy place at that time, wasn't it? Oh, very busy. They just started on the comet, just about beginning to fly. I couldn't be on the first flight of it because I was still Norwegian for some strange reason. You know how the British are with secrecy. They have to terrify it. Well, I think anybody know anything at all. And I wasn't allowed to fly on it in case I told the Norwegians about it or, <laughs> or something. And uh, uh, John was very angry about this. And uh, he put his foot down and said uh, I could at least fly as a co-pilot with him, which I did quite some time. But it took me some time to be checked out on it. I got my British nationality as soon as I could, because uh, technically I was qualified for it with just a short stay in England immediately before getting it. All my war years counted as residence in England. And uh, meanwhile, I was doing odd jobs like flying vampires, which was a good introduction to jet flying. Because <coughs> de Havilland had large orders for vampires from all around Europe. Apart from the RAF, I could fly Swiss, Swedish, Norwegian vampires. And I did the testing and delivery of this. Most of those were more advanced than the RAF vampires. So I wasn't allowed to touch an RAF vampire at all. <laughs> In what ways were they more advanced? More powerful engines? Um, different equipment and uh, various things. Later models. but uh, More expensive specifications? Yes, yes. And uh, I wasn't allowed to fly a mosquito. Because that was RAF, the British. <laughs> so it was really rather stupid. But uh, I enjoyed my vampire flying. Got quite a few flights to Norway and um, Switzerland. Swiss had ordered 50 of these, and I delivered, I think, 25 of them. Um, it was great fun. Very perilous flying again. The vampire they had ordered had a range of about, or an endurance, of say, 15 minutes more than it took flying from Hatfield to Switzerland in good conditions. So we had a chap there. We called him immediately before, saying, Can you see Mount Pilatus? And he said, yes, it looks all right from here. There's a few clouds about, but uh, I think uh, it'll stay like it is for maybe an hour, hour and a half. So let's rush into the airplane, get off and make it. Absolutely no control, no flight control, whatever. No flight planning. We flew exactly as we wanted. 
that's a straight line between Hatfield and uh, Lucerne. Uh, what? Oh, up to about 42,000. Uh, nobody asked us about our altitude at all. There was, there was no traffic up there, of course. There was no jet traffic, whatever. So we're way on our own. Did you not carry drop tanks for ferry flying? Not, no, n not on those. On the Norwegians had drop tanks and the Swedes, but uh, not the Swiss. Swiss being a tiny country, they didn't want to be lumbered with that sort of thing. Because you can fly anywhere, you can fly around. Switzerland three times without using a drop tank, probably. So the Swiss are very, well, they're cost-conscious, quality-conscious, and uh, they're a funny lot altogether. Now, what about your experience on first flying? I mean, the Vampire was your first jet you ever flew. Yes. Can uh, you remember your first experiences? Yes, so it's um, so simple. No problems, for instance, uh, on the Bowfighter, for instance, you're always warned about a terrible swing on takeoff if you weren't careful. You could have the same on a mosquito. You had to be very gentle on opening throttles and so on. Vampire, there's no question of warming up or anything like that. You start up and once the thing got up to full power you just put the throttle on the stops. Off you went. That's absolute straight line. It was so simple. So beautiful. Marvellous. Because you, know, you had no braking either that the prop gave you. I mean, no, if you, if you no. went on uh, throttle back, you had a certain amount of braking effect. Yes. On the prop. No, it's an entirely new, different technique of flying, of course. So, what you had to learn, I suppose a few people may come to grief on that, but uh, if you have plenty of runway to start with and learn how to do it, then well, once you're on a jet, it's much the same on most jets. It was until you got the reverse. Thrust, of course, which didn't happen for many years later. No, it was very simple flying. <coughs> keep the revs up fairly high because yes. of the response. Oh, yes. Now, once you learn the technique, it's, um, it's applicable to any jet, big or small, of course. There's the different element of time. Many people don't seem to learn that. You, you fly at least twice as fast as you've ever done before in your life. That means you've really got to think twice as fast as well. Some people keep them thinking on the same level. I found that so many times on instructing pilots later. That's the biggest difficulty of all. Of course, the increased performance and, of course, the, the increase in control response as well was delightful, I suppose. Your manoeuvres were so, so much crisper, were they? No, I wouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. No. i never come across anything as manoeuvrable as that first Armstrong Whitford fighter I told you about. The scimitar. Uh, that's fantastic. You can take off, straight off, and go into half loop, half roll, half loop again, and you can climb that way. <laughs> that's fabulous. It could do that with a modern fighter, but not quite with a vampire. It wasn't quite powerful enough for that. Did you fly the Venom as well? No, I didn't at that time, because uh, that was ordered by the Air Force only. So oh, I wasn't yeah. allowed on that. And by the time... I was, uh, I had my nationality fixed, uh, I wasn't really terribly interested in that, on the comet and the full time. Who were the, the other people around the Havilands at the time, I mean the other pilots, can you remember a lot of them? Oh yes, well the first one was John Cunningham, John Derry, who was a um, fantastic pilot, uh, he was killed unfortunately, in this gate crash on uh, Farnborough, do you remember? What was he like as a personality, do you remember him well? Not very nice personality. He was a little bit um, 
arrogant, shall we say. He was sort of a good pilot. He didn't have to count out anybody. And he was very short. If he didn't grasp something, he, he couldn't be bothered to explain. Then it was um, Pat Fillingham, wasn't Pat it? Pat Fillingham, yes. He was the, he was the sort of uh, backbone of the whole organization there. He was the father of the pilots, practically. Uh, the senior and the lot. He was the chief production test pilot of everything. Jeffrey Pike. Do you remember him? Mm-hmm. You must have met uh, the chief designer, R.E. Bishop. Oh, yes, of course. You close with him, did you? Uh, not all that closely. He he didn't work very closely with anybody, really. Uh, he was uh, a law unto himself. <laughs> I remember a story of him going around uh, doing offices and looking over people's shoulders when they're doing minor designs. And uh, somebody asked him, said, what do you think of that, Mr. Bishop? And he shook his head and said, uh, no. I said, what then? Anything, not that. <laughs> that was it. Start again. Not much to help. But, uh, Did you meet Arthur Hagg, or had he left? He'd left. Mm-hmm. So you worked mm-hmm. most closely with John Cunningham? Yes. Yes, we worked... Well, we were together in uh, all the trials of the comet, really. We went on um, tropical trials quite a lot. Uh, that had to be done. I uh, went to Africa. First of all, we went short trips in Europe, record-breaking trips, like to Rome and that sort of thing, just to establish a record. And uh, oh, we couldn't help making records wherever we went in those days. We went to Rome and back about four hours four hours there, four hours back, always crowds of people. Again, there was no uh, no control to speak of because the uh, air, high altitude airways didn't exist at all. Uh, we had uh, something which wouldn't be accepted these days. Our cruise control for maximum economy consisted in keeping a permanent speed let the altitude take care of itself. Cruise climb. Yes, which... Um, just couldn't be done nowadays at all. But um, I don't know how much difference it made, but it certainly made some for economy. But, you know, it meant we started off perhaps from Hatfield, about 33,000, 34,000 feet, ended up maybe 40,000. Um, steady climbs of 200 feet per minute. Good old days, nobody worried at all. Nobody to talk to. <laughs> Nowadays, there's a constant shout on the airways, isn't it? Uh, it never without anybody to talk to or anybody talking to you, telling, me, telling you to do this, that and the other. Those days, there was nothing. It really was now, quite you, you, amazing. you were exploring a totally new flight envelope, weren't you? Absolutely, yes. Mm. Um, can you remember aspects of it, you know, things that surprised you? Um, well, Comet uh, was surprising in many ways, in that it, uh, at low speed end, it behaved very much like any other aeroplane I had been flying, apart from the reluctance to slow down when you pull the power back. We had enormous flaps, of course, which gave us quite a lot of drag towards the end. We had air brakes, which I'd never used before. They weren't all that much use, low speed. They were just to slow you down to increase your descent. Of course, we had to develop emergency descent practices, which uh, we never needed before. If anything happened at, say, 35,000 feet, you had to get down very, very quickly. Otherwise, 
everybody on board will be dead in before they can get their oxygen masks on. So that sort of thing was a brand new aspect. You had, you flew in it with oxygen masks, didn't you? Oh yes, yes. We always we started off with that, of course. We ended up with it too on the comet. After the crashes on the comet, we we had a comet, a comet Mark Three. It's only one off. Well, we did a lot of flying on that in preparation for the Mark Four, but uh, it had the same skin as the previous Marks, the ones that had blown up. So we could only have half pressure in it, which meant things was very uncomfortable. And uh, they, in fact, they even made us wear parachutes at one time, which in the end we had to refuse because it, the comet. You haven't got seats for them? No, we haven't got seats for them. There's no way we could get out of a comet. So they're just a great encumbrance. Uh, something laid down by somebody with no idea what they were doing. So we gave it up. Yeah. Now, the, 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 as I remember it, and of course I've been um, reminded of it when I interviewed, it, uh, interviewed David Davis, D.P. Davis, sometime yes. back. With, um, one were the, the, the ground stalling, the fact that if you pulled the stick too far, oh, yeah. it would never lift up. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about that? <coughs> yes. Uh, I mean, did you experience uh, it yourself? No, we hadn't experienced it until uh, we had an accident, or somebody had an accident with it. <coughs> the first one, I think, was uh, the was Canadian Pacific. Canadian Pacific, yes. No. They experienced it, and nobody could understand what had happened at all. We hadn't had anything like that. This was... It was really faulty technique, perhaps our fault because we hadn't explored that end of the technique. We hadn't thought that uh, people could make mistakes like that. Of course, uh, when you're developing airplanes, you get to realize more and more the one thing you had to obey was Murphy's Law. If anything can be put together wrong, it will be. If anything can be done wrongly, it will be done wrongly. Well, we hadn't quite learnt that then. Now, of course, we know, and we make preparations for it. We do things as wrongly as we can all the time, just to see what happens. Because we know that things might happen, and we know how to remedy it. Somebody coming to it without realising that could end up in a ditch the far end of the runway or something. In other words, someone lifting the nose too high off the ground or yes. off. Yes, yes. You instinctively avoided that, but... Um, yes, we, we had our uh, speeds and everything laid down. And, of course, being test pilots, we were trained to observe those speeds very accurately. An airline pilot doesn't really worry about that sort of thing. He just fly, flies the thing. Perhaps nowadays, it's, uh, the attitude is more towards uh, greater accuracy in flying. But in those days, these are all old pilots used to DC-6s, and uh, that sort of thing. So, which are very forgiving aeroplanes, from, from that point of view. They couldn't get into the sort of attitude as a, they do with a jet aeroplane. A jet aeroplane needs a much larger incidence to get off the ground. Much larger? Yes. Uh, therefore, is being what it is, adaptive for high speed, it uh, needs to go through a great change of angle to to get you off the ground. If you keep it flat, it'll go on forever and ever. Nowadays, you have, you accelerate, uh, you, you have your rotation speed, which is something nobody heard of in a propeller-driven airplane. In a propeller-driven airplane, you can keep it going straight ahead, 
and given enough speed, the thing will just lift gently off the ground, keeping the same attitude. The attitude in a comet is amazing, the change, which um, was something people had to learn about. So what's the problem with the, with the actual airli the, the airline people? Were, were they not putting the stick back far enough? Yes, pulled it far too far. Putting the, it too far? Yes, they thought that uh, it would help them to get off the ground. In the end, of course, we realized there was a, just a very small band where you would get uh, a ground stall. They go along the ground, and uh, uh, in fact, the air for it would be stalled and uh, not being very efficient. It, you wouldn't accelerate uh, very quickly. Um, you just wouldn't get enough lift to get you off the ground, so it just went trundling on at the same speed. In the end, we, we corrected it by putting a, a probe at the back underneath the um, tail, which was uh, quite a um, couple of feet deep, I suppose, from uh, a streamlined triangle underneath to, to stop people from achieving this great angle. From a tail skip. It was, very, yes, it was a very critical angle. It had to be exactly right to get into this condition, but uh, some people achieved it. We had one disaster like that. Had a few near disasters afterwards, and we did. Yes, we did a lot of um, testing on this. We got it down to a pretty fine art. We had a um, replaceable shoe underneath this uh, skid, and we got it down to just scraping this shoe on the um, runway, making a great firework display, wearing the shoe out in one go, which was our aim, just to see how deep this thing needed to be. During this, do, doing this, of course, we had uh, instrumentation on board, which uh, an airline pilot wouldn't have, like angle of incidence and so on. So we, we can judge that to within half a degree. So we, we could nudge that thing down on the runway and just take it off and see if it would lift off at the, that angle. Didn't the wing also have some uh, drooped leading edge? Help. Yes. Not a comet, no. Mm -hmm. No, Trident did that. But a fixed droop, not a... didn't have a slight... No, uh, the, the Trident had a, a, a variable droop. Mm. Well, of course, there are all sorts of things. Uh, the wings looked beautiful clean to start with, but uh, and we had to introduce um, spoilers front of the wing to get a proper stall and fences lengthwise to get proper airflow at the stall to get sure that you had the stall exactly where you wanted to. We wanted it to stall at the portion near the, the fuselage first so that you had a nose drop because that's where a stall should be. It's laid down by ARB or somebody. That's the way a stall should go. Of course no jet airplane will do that on its own so we had to induce all these things. So I spent thousands of flights doing stalls, maybe half a dozen flights a day, and just altering these spoilers up and down, a fraction of an inch, just trying them out. And I think I had a world record in stalls in the jet airplane, still have. <laughs> Some of them are very dramatic, and up nearly on your back, which is not a nice thing in a big airplane. But you didn't have any deep stall trouble on the Comet? Not on the Comet, no. Mm. Mm. You had your low tail, tail plane. Mm. Mm. Well, we did on the Trident. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
the other thing, of course, on the comet was the, the decompression problem, the um, pressurization failure in the Comet 1. Well, that wasn't a pressurization failure, it was an explosion. Yeah. The um, fuselage skin gave away, it's like blowing up a um, football and it just blows. If you blow hard enough, that's what happened. And you, you, uh, there was absolutely no uh, intimation that this might happen? Absolutely none whatever. The materials we used were, they were tested to our satisfaction in the, in the knowledge that we had at that time. And the Americans on the 707 used exactly the same procedures, same tests, same manufacturing processes. They would have had the same thing if they had been ahead of us. But uh, um, from your Yes, we told them all about it. We thought we couldn't hold back anything like that. And... Uh, told them to watch out for these things, and they altered things correspondingly. So they learned from our mistakes, no doubt about that. Uh, with their resources and production capabilities, of course, they pulled ahead in no time. That was mainly due to, uh, wasn't it a square-edge window? A square-edge window, yes, mm. which, of course, nobody uses nowadays. You, well... Oh, they were in DC-3s, weren't they? Yes. <laughs> and, of course, we, after that, our testing procedures became very different. We used to use water tank testing, which uh, could test things to destruction uh, safely with uh, water pressure instead of air pressure. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very expensive. Not dramatic, but uh, very useful. We learned an awful lot from that. And all these testing the destructions are very expensive. When you see a wing, comet wing, being tested to destruction, it's unbelievable the way it goes up before it suddenly snaps and breaks. And you know that that is three times the load you're ever, ever going to put on it in service. So you feel really good about that. Because you had no computers to model those situations. No, no. Mm-hmm. What, what about the, the flight information details? Did you have simple telemetry? Yes, yes, we did that. You, you um, didn't have a knee pad, a, a writing pad on your knee? Oh, we used knee pads in huge quantities, yes. But, uh, no, we didn't use a lot of tel- telemetry. Uh, that came in more on the Trident. We, no, everything. We had uh, the whole cabin full of instruments, of course, in instrument observers. Uh, so... After each flight, there were hours and hours of analysing these things. You never quite knew what you had been doing until next week, really. So from that point of view, it was not all... Being a test pilot is not usually exciting. It's just slogging on and on and on. There are times when it um, become too exciting, but uh, not very often. People think of it as a very exciting job, but uh, it's... Um, these stalls, for instance... There were nine to five jobs, really. Uh, he got in the first job in the morning, back again, small alterations, and uh, in the evening you, well, you gave up. Except for us. We were had by our ground crew, who, of course, got a lot of overtime, which we didn't, so they were terribly keen on to work on weekends, which meant that for, I don't know how many years, I never had a weekend off at all. Always always doing these things on the weekend, which was infuriating, but there's nothing much we could do about it. 
And then, of course, you went on to the Comet 3, you briefly, briefly mentioned, the Comet uh -huh. 4. And some um, slightly interesting things yes. happening at weekends. For instance, on the Comet 4, we had uh, a weekend flight to check the um, air conditioning. And we invited a lot of people up in this and supplied three cigar cigarettes and everything and made a long flight. We had to make a four-hour flight for this and we went from Hatfield on a Sunday um, up to north of Scotland out in the, uh, to the outer Hebrides and back down the west coast and so on. Uh, over the outer Hebrides one engine failed and uh, no reason whatever. Absolutely not. It just wound down. There was nothing we could do to start it, which meant we had to start slowly, slowly going downhill, which didn't really worry us too much, because three is plenty, the comment. And then halfway home to Hatfield, a second engine did exactly the same. Then, of course, well, we were on a slow letdown by this time. Nobody in the back noticed anything at all. And, uh, of course, we, um, we were coming back. Were so they on the same side, those two engines? Uh, yeah, I think they were. But that didn't, again, didn't matter on the comet. Uh, once you were up and at speed, uh, no problem. Slight twitch in the um, trim tabs, and that's all. And going down slowly, slowly, said nobody noticed anything at all. And we laid plans over to go over Lineham in case we had any problem. But of course, there was nobody at Lineham being weekend. And then just about there, the third engine failed, <laughs> and then we really were in trouble. We are still about 15,000 feet. I thought, um, this is obviously something to do with icing. Something told me that, and I know that the temperature is uh, well above freezing level. Freezing level would be about 10,000 feet, so once we got down below that, we could uh, stood around for quite a bit of time down there, get everything unthawed. And uh, so it was. And in fact, it, uh, it was water in the fuel, freezing at high altitude, which caused us. And we didn't, didn't have... We had fuel filters, and uh, these ice crystals blocked up the filters, fuel filters. In those days, we didn't have fuel filter de-icing, which we had the very next week, of course. So we, we learned from that sort of thing. You got into half fuel on one engine. Yeah, I think uh, uh, we started up an another one because um, fuel filters uh, really actually thawed out by the time we got down low level. So nobody noticed anything in the back at all. Yeah, full, full the air conditioning was, was um, no, no, to it still, still worked. <laughs> so you get things like that which are interesting. I was going to anticipate just now, moving on to the Comet 4, it was quite a different animal really, wasn't it? Yes, this was a Comet 4. Oh, this was Yes, Comet 4 or 3, maybe, which was the same thing. But you had Avon engines, which were more powerful. Yes. Oh, yes, it, was, uh, it started looking like a, a proper aeroplane. The, the ones and twos were, they were a bit, a bit small, really. And a very small pa uh, number of passengers. Yes, they did. We had one model which I particularly liked. Before we started on the three and the four, we tried out the Avon engines on our Mark II. We had two Avons and two Ghosts on this. 
And that really was what you might call a sport model, a terrible sport to take off. And very impressive. What was the rate so, of climb? Oh, something I can't remember exactly, but it was quite staggering for a, a civil airliner. We never used it uh, fully loaded, of course, we just used it as an, an engine test bed. So there, there were highlights like that. Uh, I had job taking that for tropical trials and uh, uh, in Africa. In those days, you could still use places like Libya and that sort of place, and they were welcome all the time. I remember I ended up in a place in the middle of Sahara, looking for really hot weather, a place called Gadamas nobody ever heard of. Right in the middle of Sahara. Lovely little place, full of camels. <laughs> but you had enough runway there? Yes, plenty with this uh, this startling takeoff, no problem. So that way we really got around the world quite a lot. And uh, caught every every trip abroad was a, a new experience. Nobody had done any navigation like this before at all. There were very few navigation aids. We just had the odd uh, TF beacon around the world, but no, none of the more sophisticated things. You uh, asked for navigation? Yes, we had, but uh, it was pretty useless. We had a, um, a hatch in the comet, but um, no, we didn't use it. Uh, life isn't long enough for that sort of thing. We go, so it's set court, and I remember going to Tripoli once. We set court over Hatfield and never unplugged the autopilot at all until we hit Tripoli. Absolutely spot on. There's no point in using astro-navigation when your actual flying is so accurate. So, I mean, the so fast. Sorry, with the autopilot, was it slaved into beacons on the way? Or was it no, no, couldn't do that. that They're uh, reckoning then, yes, yes. But uh, it, was, it was fairly accurate. That's, well, that's what I've been doing in the past on, uh, as an airline pilot. Not only did reckoning, using direction-finding beacons. There were no VORs or anything like that in those days. But the beacons uh, never spaced well around the world. But um, the occasional check really helped us quite a lot. But uh, the DR was of such um, an order that uh, wind speed at that speed is, uh, becomes uh, rather unimportant. If you're doing 200 miles an hour, 50 mile an hour beam wind is uh, a huge factor. When you're doing 500 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour, doesn't matter all that much. 10%. Hmm. Mm. It's from 10% up to 25. Mm. But if you're doing it quite a number of hours, your 10% error does build up. Ah, uh, yes, but then you know roughly, you know roughly from which direction. You don't know exactly. Nobody could tell you that even now. You know whether it's 100 miles an hour or 50 miles an hour or calm. So you allow for it. So there aren't all that many big surprises. There have been lately when people get into jet streams and so on. Mm. But uh, Any other memories of the comet? Did you have many visitors um, from airline customers? Oh yes, yes. We had, we had an order book. God knows how many uh, airlines... Every airline in the world was queuing up to buy them, just before the big tragedies happened. And then, of course, uh, well, we couldn't deliver anyway, because we had to stop producing while investigating the characters. It took an awful long time to fish things off the coast of Italy, 
getting together at Farnborough and uh, finding out exactly what happened. And it was a fantastic piece of engineering putting it together. We become quite expert on it later, of course. Uh, I had a lot to do with accident investigations, which were, um, I think, probably the most interesting part of my flying career of any, trying to find out why people flew into the ground. It's not always simple. There used to be a thing called uh, pilot error. Well, we don't use that word now. It's not, well, nowadays we would say it's not politically correct, but uh, uh, a pilot error, uh, it's any error which is not inherent in uh, the aeroplane, such as blowing up. It can be a mistake in timing, a mistake in technique, anything like that can contribute to pilot error, uh, which is usually because of uh, faulty training. But, uh, now this is not apropos of the comet at all, this is... Well, this is to do with the comet, as I, I had quite a number of accident investigations on the comet. But not to do with the blowing up? No, 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 no. No, we got that sorted, finally, by Farnborough, and uh, then, of course, we had to start again. This is Peter Bouguet, continued at Reel 2. It was a um, fantastic flight. Uh, we'd been shorter distances, like uh, Africa, South Africa, and so on, on uh, tropical trials. But uh, this trip to Australia was a pure and simple demonstration and a record attempt. And, uh, well, we did it. I don't remember exact details. My main memory is having four breakfasts on the way, bacon, eggs, every stop, and uh, the reception we got in uh, Sydney was absolutely out of this world. Uh, they were much more friendly towards the English than, than they seem to be now. And there were literally hundreds of people, thousands of people on the, on the airfield. And they all came right, absolutely streaming right up to the comet. As we stopped, we tried to shut the engine, the switch off. We couldn't get out of the airplane for an hour or so until after we landed. And we got pictures of proud fathers holding the babies up to the air intakes to look in. And really perilous sort of thing. It was quite out of control, but it was marvellous. And you said that your record is still in existence, is it? It's, uh, we did it in just under 24 hours elapsed time. I don't think you can do better than that on any. It's not a record still. Um, obviously somebody's better than the record. But uh, you can't do it better in any commercial airline at the moment, I don't think. Could you tell me something about the Trident now? Your yes, yes. Of course everybody thought Trident was going to be the salvation after having failed to sell the number of comets we thought we were still ahead of the Americans in the construction of the Trident. Three engine airplane was a brand new thing. Four were too many, two not enough, so it had to be three. It was a very logical development. Trident was a very modern airplane in every way. It had um, everything triplicated. There's no way anything could go wrong at all. So many safeguards built in. Right from the start, we had learned an awful lot of things from the comet. Things like full hydraulic control. Most pilots are terribly suspicious of uh, flying controls without any actual physical feel in them. 
course it isn't an issue, it's all artificial. As opposed to cable controls? Yes. I was uh, a bit bit too advanced at that time. Even in the comet, I said, uh, we can do it now. Why 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 on earth do we have to pamper to all these very senior, very ancient airline pilots who insist on having a huge gate stick and hold back on it? We can do it with a matchstick. It can serve exactly the same purpose. And it's no problem. We have the um, capability of doing that. But there's no way I could get that over to anybody. No, you had to have this great thing. The heavier, the more you pulled. People didn't think you could develop enough sensitivity in your two fingers. Well, it's ridiculous, of course. And any modern fighter pilot has it now. Even the, the Airbus has it now. And we could have done it then. But uh, there was one time uh, I got so exasperated. Uh, I said, you should shoot every senior pilot in the world. Except a couple of us back at Hatfield. Let us start afresh. Because it was very difficult. Um, when you had to introduce a new aeroplane to pilots, you have to make use of their experience. Um, if it goes against what they're used to, they're not safe. And if you try to educate 20-year-old, which we could have done, they wouldn't have the experience to carry off a flight across the world. You have to have some experience for that. But with this experience, you get all the bad experience as well. There's no way we could get over that. It would take a generation, which is what it has now. It's no good trying to be too quick. But you still had your power controls? Oh, yes. We had power control. We, we won that battle in the end with no reversion to, to manual, which a lot of people insisted on in the Comet. And we just managed to get out of that uh, on the Trident. There was no question of it, of course. It's all purely power controls. And it worked very well, even so. You can put exactly what you want into it. We still have a, a very controversial stick which went this way. The ram's horns. ram's horns. I didn't like that at all. But uh, I was talked out of any opposition to it by people who thought I knew better. It takes an awful lot of time to get used to. And it's the most unnatural. With that, you fly on his stomach muscles because moving something very heavily from side to side uh, there is no natural resistance if you do it one way against another you can balance the two arms together or pushing and pulling you can balance your, with your whole body this sideways motion I, I never got to like that so they had it on the 125 as well didn't they? yes and the Concorde uh, no I don't think quite the same no. they rotated did they mm. Anyway, um, uh, so we, uh, the first flight on the Trident, of course, was an absolute classic. It takes an awful long time to get as far as the first flight. Take weeks and weeks building up the runs down the runway, checking the brakes, checking the tires, checking everything. And then you just do rocking to see that everything functions the right way around. And then the great moment came, comes when you actually take off. The take off was absolutely perfect. We got off the ground and uh, got up and did the normal functions, which you always do first of all, check undercarriage, up and down, flaps, everything, timing and so on. Everything works in the right direction, in the right order. So it happened that uh, we hadn't quite followed Murphy's law on the undercarriage. Something did go wrong. Uh, we had a very, very clever 
arrangement on the undercarriage. It was a very big undercarriage, very unusual undercarriage, uh, which had to turn sideways as it got down. And uh, the hole it left in the wing when it was done was enormous, so it would have um, affected the, the lift coming in at low speed. And so we had doors closing these, and uh, we had something wonderful word called a sequencing valve, which directed all the hydraulic pressures at the right time to the right places. Now this one went wrong, and it directed the landing gear leg up as it directed the uh, um, door, wing closing door, down. So they, they met together, and they got stuck, absolutely stuck. We just take it up or down, there were two forces acting together. So there was stuck one gear halfway up and the other one further down. It was the worst possible way you can have an aeroplane. And especially on the very first flight, <laughs> you don't know how it's going to work. A brand new undercarriage in a configuration nobody had ever tried before. Four wheels in tandem and um, a square on one side. So they were very stuck, and of course we had been very confident. We had a full press score in the flying control, <laughs> so we didn't want to go too public on this. We got our chief hydraulic engineer up in the tower as well, told him, and he said, "No, it's not possible. It's impossible. It couldn't happen." <laughs> so I said, "Fortunately, we have photographic proof because we had a, a meteor and a Canberra as photographic chase airplanes." They had taken hundreds of pictures of this. So we'll show you when we get down, if we get down in one piece. Meanwhile, what do we do? He had no answer at all. And it was our flight engineer came up with the answer in the end. And I said, if you trim the airplane to fly nice and steady, it's, we found the airplane is quite stable in level flight. You can switch off all the controls, all the hydraulics, dump all the hydraulic pressure, which means you have no flying control and uh, no undercarriage control, flap control, anything. So things will just fall down naturally. And so we did, and the thing flew very smoothly and steadily, only for half a minute or so. And we had this man by the cockpit door, somebody holding on to his ankles when he had, had his head outside looking at the undercarriage. And said, and it went down and said, the door open then, did you? Yes, we had to do that. We couldn't see the undercarriage from the cockpit. Did you chase aircraft, you Yes, but we wanted to make sure ourselves. Anyway. And uh, so there it was. And so we, <laughs> we left it at that, put the pressure back on again, in which case it stayed down. Everything was all right. But as our engineer said, it could not have happened. But it did. <laughs> anyway, that was it. And uh, from then on, we didn't have any problems, except with... The thing didn't perform quite the way it should because of the specification, which we had to follow because of BEA. Uh, it wasn't quite as lively as we thought it should have been. It's good enough for BEA, perfect for them, absolutely adequate. People with enormous runways, wherever they went, it couldn't be better. But it wasn't a very economical aeroplane for anyone else. But uh, wow. test because uh, it needed a long runway to take off. And, uh, of course, we had to... Uh, we got it modified in the end. The four... The, the 
with one E and one F and so on, they had modified droop leading edges, and so had better takeoff performance. So we could sell those to a few other people. Not a, not a lot because again the Americans had overtaken us with a 727, and they were in the business of making 100 airplanes while we made one. So there's no way we could compete with them on that. But was the wing then not versatile enough? I mean, uh, yes, it, it was, but we hadn't uh, we hadn't developed it. We had developed it for B B A. The wing is a marvelous wing, beautiful wing, and it's still to this day a very good aerodynamic wing. I think we learned from that wing. Uh, what what we learned from that wing has gone into the wing of the Airbus, for instance. So it was a first class, top performance wing, but. Not the way that BEA had it. But didn't, didn't the ordinary ones, didn't they have leading edge troops? Yes, but not, uh, nothing like as much as we had later, as good as we had later. They were very simple, and just straight down. The, the later ones came out and down, and made it very complicated wing shape. And the flaps, enormous flaps, again, very complicated shapes. But it was designed also to lose height very rapidly. I mean, you could oh, yes. use reverse thrust in flight. Yes, yes, we did that, yes. Yes, I mean, one, be, uh, one BEA captain told me that the, the, the VSI often went off the clock coming down. Oh, yes. Over 9,000 feet a minute. Yeah. Oh, indeed, yes. Mm. That was quite and that exciting. was designed for operating in a very crowded airspace then, wasn't it? Yes, um, well, this was, this was mainly because of the uh, requirement for getting down from, from altitude in case of failure. That wasn't a commercial requirement? Yes. Not a commercial. No, not a commer not, emergency no, no. requirement. Yeah, yes, it was. Mainly that. Then, of course, we had a, a bit of, quite a lot of trouble with the superstall on this. It was the first aeroplane that really had a superstall. We thought it had. Nobody could be quite certain of it because uh, it, uh, nobody had ever actually tried it. But from the configuration, we could see that it could, in theory, get into that sort of position. And so we got as near as we possibly could. Um, again, I did most of the stalls on it, and uh, I got into one very, very near super stall. I lost a good 10,000 feet on it, and just got out and skin of my teeth. Hard work, my stomach muscles, this awkward thing. How? Were you wagging the wings? Yes, uh, trying to get the thing. It, it went. It did like a falling leaf, which I'd done before in a tiger moth, but never in a big airplane. <laughs> Very uncomfortable. And you managed to restart the engines? Oh, the, the engines didn't stop, Porter. They kept going. But they, you couldn't get enough power to get you out of it? No, no. The uh, angle of incident was such that uh, uh, we were in a stall, and uh, there was no lift on the wing, and the, the tail was getting ineffective because it was in the slipstream on the wing. So that was a big problem. We got over that in the end by various devices, like we had a, a stick pusher, which pushed the stick forward, got it out of your grip, in fact, and when you got up to a certain angle, it was very effective, and as long as you used it. Uh, we had one pilot, ignored it, crashed his aeroplane. Well, George, isn't it? George Arrington. Yeah, he wasn't a pilot. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he was not a Titan pilot. It was used by one of our newer pilots, who was a, a, a Navy pilot, Peter Barlow. He did things, he was a very, very awkward character indeed, 
and he didn't believe. He thought he was God's gift to aviation, which he certainly was not. And uh, I told him, you know, very carefully, do not go into this area. But he was doing production test flying, and he got people like George Errington, who shouldn't have been in that airplane at all, because they didn't know anything about it. But this chap didn't like flying with any of us, because we might have told him to do otherwise. I have suspicion that he was going to show George Eddington um, how good he was at the stall. And of course he got into a super stall and just spiraled down gently. And they both died? Everybody on board, yes. Terrible. Yes. It, was, it should never have happened. But that was directly ignoring instructions, which is a very bad deal. I mean, it was not a mistake. Mm. And not a... He didn't into it in ignorance he just thought it was too clever and he, he had a stick pusher or not yes we switched it off switched it yes off. Well, you can do that uh, on test on test flights mm -hmm. you can do that just remove the circuit breaker and everything goes stick shaker first you had a stick shaker shaking the thing violently when you got near it and if it persisted you had a stick pusher really pushed it very hard yes and I suggested that after that, that we should get somebody to go and save the Queen <laughs> I didn't quite get that in um, were you around when they uh, they lost that trident at Heathrow were you in, in on the investigation of that one now what happened to that well it, it, uh, they suspect it was a super saw it was in passenger service and I believe the pilot had a heart attack oh, oh that's right yes were you in on the no, I wasn't on the investigation of that. I don't quite know why not. I did uh, practically all the investigations in the Comet and uh, on the Trident. We, well, we didn't have all that many fatal things on the Trident. I just had to teach people how to fly them. Which <laughs> was quite that interesting. Was a difficult job? It started off by being almost impossible. Uh, point was, uh, we could only sell this thing to... Uh, third World Airlines, like Iraqi Airways and uh, Pakistanis. Naturally, Pakistanis weren't too bad. Iraqis, they were that's a hopeless lot. Some of them are brilliant pilots, and some of them shouldn't ever been in, in any airplane at all. Same all over that part. Same with Egyptians, teaching them to fly comets, fly, and teaching people to fly under those circumstances is not very rewarding because uh, in all these airlines there's somebody there who doesn't want to take any responsibility at all and they say it's up to you and I said you give me the pilots and I'll train them and it's up to you to select the pilots and they go on like that if anything goes wrong it's my fault they make quite certain that they can never be blamed for anything so it's not easy and if you tell them somebody is not fit to do the job said, oh, give him another chance. He's a nephew of a minister of interior. You must give him another chance. Well, I said, I don't care if his nephew or anybody. It's no good as a pilot. Oh, you must give him another chance. I said, okay, I'll give him another ten hours if you pay for it. It's your, your money and your airplane, but I can't guarantee anything. And uh, then uh, after ten hours, I said, I will not do any more with this pilot. If after I leave, you decide to go on, that's your problem. 
I don't want to waste my time on him. That's the sort of thing that happens all the time with that sort of airline. It wouldn't happen in a European airline because they have much more discipline and they, the average is much better. They have a certain average before they get to flying the latest airplanes. Well, that doesn't happen. For instance, Argentine airlines never come across a place with less discipline. It's impossible. Not just flying, but in everything. They never had any accidents, though, did they? Yes, they did. Oh, yes. On the Argentinian? Yes. On a comet? Yes. Oh, yes, two. They lost oh, two? Yes, I investigated one of them. One was so simple, it didn't need an investigation. Um, they had uh, two pilots. I knew them both. I trained one of them, and the other one was a co-pilot. I'd, I'd met, but I hadn't trained. The captain was a very good pilot, but uh, it so happened on this occasion, uh, they teamed up wrongly. Their teaming had gone entirely wrong, because you've got to be very careful with that in South America. There are people whose family haven't spoken to each other for hundreds of years. If they happen to be in an airline, if the co-pilot and the captain are two opposite families, you have problems. This happened in this instant, and uh, the co-pilot was, uh, they had a, a certain way of approaching um, at night, not very many aids, and uh, it's, it wasn't easy in a comet because it was in the early days, and the attitude was such that uh, it's very difficult to judge whether you're going flat or descending or going uphill. The pilot had his eye on the landing strip, the lights in front of him, which can be very deceptive. The co-pilot is supposed to read out the altimeter every hundred feet. Now, if you have a co-pilot who doesn't speak as a captain, that doesn't work. <laughs> the, the captain was killed in this accident. Nobody else did. The co-pilot was alive. We asked if he had done the correct procedure. He said, no, I don't speak to the captain. They should never have been rostered together. No, of course not. <laughs> but that, again, was a lack of discipline. No, somebody didn't do the right thing. And that happened all the time. I was called in. I'd been with him for half a year before teaching them. This was, oh, maybe a year after. And I was called in to give them all a check, all the pilots, because I thought they were getting bad habits. And I said, I know your pilots, most of them very good pilots. If I'm with them, they'll do the right thing. It's quite pointless me doing this. It's up to you to ensure that you have the discipline. I fly around with them, and I suspect that I'll only confirm that they're doing the right thing when I'm there. And so they did. That's, that's no way to run an airline. I'm getting very cynical about it now. I recognize I spent a whole working life flying airplanes, and it was great fun. And uh, in the war, I wouldn't have done anything else. And I, I did a job that had to be done. After that, it was just fun for me, personally. Sometimes I wonder what good I've served the world, and the answer is none whatever. <laughs> I asked, I remember early on in the comet, I asked somebody in the Havilands, who wants these airplanes? Is it the airlines? Is it the flying public? Or is it just you who've got to make a profit? And I was told, shut up. Don't bother your head about that sort of thing. Just fly the darn thing. And I've always wondered who it is who wants them. Because if you start off with 
DC sixes, they're comfortable airplane, slow, they get to there, and so somebody can make a faster airplane, so it will be made. It's like going to the moon, climbing Everest. It's there. It's got to be done. But it hasn't got mankind any further, has it? I haven't served a good purpose in the world from that point of view. I think it's a bit of, bit of a waste. I've enjoyed it, but that's just... More people have travelled, but whether what, what it's got them... Look at the Costa Brava. <laughs> I don't think that's a great advance.